Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Brownlow's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from the Star Wars Universe podcast. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 99, which begins with a chorus of Lokis laughing at Thor and ends with Loki pinned down but still berating him. Joining us for the show, as every day this week, is Dr. Arnold Blumberg, publisher, author, educator, pop culture, and comics historian, and friendly neighborhood zombie expert. So, Arnold, happy Thor's Day! It's Thursday, and every <laughs> Thor's Day, we always ask people, what is your favorite Thor moment? This can be from a movie, a comic book, uh, the back of a cereal box, whatever it is, what's your moment? Well, I was trying to think of what a good one was, and I'll just, uh, it may not be all time, but I'll I'll go with one that feels relevant in what we've been talking about, which is the moment when I realized that Chris Hemsworth's Thor was such an asset to the series and made me really kind of like fall in love with that character in a way that I didn't from this film. And that's when he's in the Avengers. And uh, as a callback to this, of course, and everything, there's the scene where they're on the, the helicarrier and he stands up for Loki and Asgard at that point, they're like saying, I forget if it's Banner says that Loki's crazy. And, uh, and Thor says, you know, be careful how you talk about him. He's from Asgard, you know, and they said he killed all these people and he's adopted. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that that moment is so funny and so understated. And it speaks to like Hemsworth really being one of those guys that like you see a few of these guys where it's like they're they're incredibly handsome, muscular guys, but they're also incredible comedians, which you wouldn't necessarily think, which makes it even funnier. And it's like an early glimmer of where that character could go that really humor and and him as part of a larger ensemble is going to be one of the greatest strengths of the Thor character in this series. And uh, and it was a joy to see him sort of like blossom that way in the Avengers. So that's one of my favorite moments. That is such a great moment. I agree with you. I, I, I come to really love him in his own movies. And this movie, I've certainly changed my opinion on as I, I really got to dive deep into it. But I will always think Thor works best as that kind of like fish out of water with everyone else around him. And just the comic timing he has is so good there. We'll get into all that more in just one moment. Going to wear some Marvel Movie Minute-inspired clothing? Maybe looking for a mug with our mugs on it? Find out what you're looking for at our online store. Just head to truestory.fm slash Minute and click on Merch. All right, so welcome back. So we start with this chorus of Lokis. And as we said, this is kind of, you know, Loki can't just win. He has to get in the last laugh. And Thor just says enough. And he smashes his hammer and they all go flying. And I love this great overhead shot we get of just Thor surrounded by them as he's knocking them all back. What do you all think of these first couple moments we get this minute? It's that fantastic God's eye view shot that that Brana has used throughout the film, you know, as Thor brings down the lightning and blows them all uh, into oblivion. Uh, it just it, it works exceptionally well. And yeah, just I mean, I love that he plays so much with the God's eye view shots in this film. I mean, it's 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 definitely an angle that of a camera that you notice. Right. And and it fits in context of the story here with these gods um, using the shot as much as as is used in the film. I, I think it's just a fantastic moment. It's also the conclusion of a little bit there that we were talking about in the last episode of what feels like either specifically or at least generally 
a very nice nod to a very comic book kind of visual of all the Lokis and such a beautifully done version. And I also have to say again, I think I mentioned at least once before already, I just love the visual design of the bridge and, and the way they made that feel real. And that by the way, extends to something I was going to mention in one of the other episodes, but it still plays in here too, is the sound effects, some great sound effects work whenever anything hits the bridge. Like it's not what you'd think. It it sounds kind of like, glass and metal and it's just i mean there's like a lot of stuff that you just kind of take for granted unless you're more in that realm mm-hmm. but i think of all the sound engineers and people that work on these movies that maybe never get any notice because you just figure well yeah that's what it sounds like and you don't think about it but even the bridge sounds good yeah and i think all of that uh just makes it feel real in a way that really helps the the whole thing you know, back in the first minute, I had a note that we didn't get a chance to talk about because there was so much going on that like four or five seconds into it, you hear what sounds like a screech. And I thought at first, is that is that an animal? Is that a raven? And Andy, I think you pointed out, it's probably the sound of like ice that ice makes as, as being moved. I think yeah, that squeak, right? Yeah, it's right. just the sound engineer here is so good. The, through this whole fight, I mean, because we've got their fighting, we've got the 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 energy of the Rainbow Bridge and the sounds of them on it. We have everything going on with the observatory and the Bifrost blasting through space. Like, there's just so much sound in here. Plus, Patrick Doyle's music. I mean, it really they they excel in in really creating the world because it's all effects. This is all you know a green screen <laughs> stage that they're all basically mm-hmm. jumping around on and wire rigs, and everything here is created. And I, sometimes you lose sight of the fact that virtually every single thing, other than Hemsworth and Hiddleston here, are are being fabricated for the purposes of what we're watching. Right. I want to point out something, too, that's uh, also become sort of a pet peeve for me with a lot of big movies. I, I'm not saying it's the case here, but like you you put your finger on it right here, which is that so many of our biggest films and certainly any film that has to construct a reality, like certainly any of these movies, they're all ultimately, I think now more than ever, too, with the kind of uh, protocols people need for filmmaking right now. A lot of these films are huge movies, but really feel very small because you can kind of sort of tell that it's two people standing in a green screen closet. And and it really then depends on the extraordinary art and and mastery of all the people creating the visuals and and the environment of the film to not make you notice that it's so tiny. Yeah. And and I think this is a good example of a scene that doesn't immediately make you feel that they're standing in a small room it feels very expansive and that's not always the case even with some mcu movies it's not always the case sometimes it just feels like well i know they're really only standing in one block of a thing with a green screen (laughs) but but it's it's very nicely done i think that's so true and i think it also goes both ways you know in that what it also it requires the technical skill to make it make you believe everything's happening there it also requires the acting skill because hmm. uh, these actors, like, you know, they're holding cardboard cutouts of things and they're, surra- like you said, they're on green screens. They have to act as though they're in this world that they're not, you know, they don't even get to envision because it's all put in post later. And mm-hmm. like here, I think of that especially, you know, it, 
Tom Hiddleston has to act as though this hammer is on his chest that makes him not be able to move. You can't actually recreate that or you'll kill the actor. And yet he acts it in a way that I never for a minute doubt that this is a person doing everything he possibly can and just unable to move the hammer. I think some of that also comes from the fact, again, that they brought on Kenneth Branagh to direct this. Uh, not to mm-hmm. say that that other directors haven't been able to do that as well, but coming from the stage where actors do have to imagine this sort of stuff, that when when you're doing like you know a big war scene, you have to just imagine there are all these troops here, and and being a stage director who is able to communicate to his actors visually what they need to see in their mind's eye that you're not going to be able to see when you're out on the stage or in this case on the on the green screen stage i I think that's very critical for a director to be able to help the actors get to that place and i think that he he brings it here great point and it's a good point also about it makes me wonder actually how many other people from a stage background would be better choices for a lot of these kind of movies because that approach is a very appropriate approach for this kind of filmmaking. Sure. And the thing is, it shows the threshold. Like I always remember one of those like infamous anecdotes. I'm sure you guys know too, the, the, uh, I forget. I think it goes back to Lord of the Rings as opposed to the Hobbit, but they always just tell that story that McKellen like had that breakdown day one day where he's doing Gandalf and there's like, he's talking to tennis balls and everything. And <laughs> apparently there was a day where he like stormed off and said like, you know, this isn't why I did the, like the Royal, the whatever. And <laughs> like, like he just really couldn't take it anymore. It was a whole day on the green screen. I'm thinking this is a stage legend who is himself having trouble dealing with the ridiculous restrictions placed on you. Yeah by all the VFX and everything. And it's like, yeah, you, you, but you need that temperament just to be able to keep it in your head. And I, I think that it's very easy to discount when, you know, as the audience, when we're watching this, because it's all there for us. Like, we don't have to do any work. <laughs> it's, it's just there. Yes. Uh, but for all of them, and this is, you know, their job, and this is why they get paid to do what they do, because they're able to get themselves into the emotional space to perform these big emotional scenes that they have to do, but also all of the technical complexities that go in with it, whether they're on a wire rig and they're imagining all these different things are happening. I mean, it's I can imagine how if you, if you step just enough out of it you're all of a sudden like this is absurd like none of this makes any sense to me so yeah i I think in this sort of moment we buy into it because all of these people are doing their absolute best in all the little things that they have to do in order to make it seem real and it's hard it's it's a very hard thing to do and one thing i think you can also look at is as much as I love the MCU, I'm not an apologist for it. I definitely will recognize the problems. And I do think that there have been some movies, especially some recently, where you can just tell that at some point the director kind of falls in love with the computer graphics so much that the actors and the acting kind of get swallowed up. And, and you get these just like, like, I love Shang-Chi so much. And I think the last 15 or 20 minutes of that movie just becomes CGI and everything else gets lost. And the fact that in this scene, at least, everything in the CGI, what it's doing is allowing the acting to be and the dialogue to be front and center in a way that I just think like it, it instead of those things getting swallowed up. And the fact that even this early on that's happening in the MCU. Yeah, I think it's, it's really a credit to Branagh and to the actors. Well, and we're getting a story here that's not about I'm going to kill you. 
And I think that's another important element that really helps. And again, going back to, I want more of this sort of story in the MCU, Thor defeats his brother by putting Mjolnir on his chest. And that's essentially the end of the fight. And it's like, that's great. Like, I love that sort of thing. And now Thor has to figure out, okay, now what do I do to stop, you know, what my brother has set into motion? And that's kind of the whole last three quarters of this minute here as Thor is trying to, you know, looks at the observatory and figures it out. But that's what I, I, I find so gratifying here is it's not just about I'm going to I'm going to hit you and kill you. And that's the end. I'm actually just going to stop you so that I can focus on doing what I need to do. And I think that really also helps make this uh, more effective. It's also an indicator of exactly the kind of tone that either truly endeared you to the MCU or immediately started people complaining. But then again, they're going to complain about things anyway, Sure, which is that which is that the hammer thing is also funny. (laughs) It's a great great humorous moment. Like, because it's kind of like a subversion where you think, Oh, how's he going to beat him? And say he's going to beat him just by putting the hammer on him. (laughs) And it's funny. And it's like that is, it's that kind of way that the MCU movies have of undercutting even moments of tension with levity. That's, either depending on how you feel and i think most of the time is a strength or sometimes people feel it's a weakness and you can certainly argue that there are occasions where they do it where it's maybe not the best choice for the story Mm -hmm. but most of the time i think it is and it's a great tone i think overall for these characters who are after all so incredibly fanciful and silly that there should be some humor to a lot of it and it's a great touch to end a fight with something like that And it's such a beautiful moment, especially because I think it says so much about Thor, because I don't think Thor intends this, but it is also one of the biggest, like, FUs to Loki in that, like, you've basically just put something literally on his chest that is just a reminder of how unworthy he is, you know, because it's like Thor is able to wield his hammer and Loki can't even, like, sit up with it because he is so unworthy. He is so unable to do anything with it. And I I don't think Thor meant to rub it in his face like that, but that's absolutely the effect that it has here. I think it's, I think it's both a hilarious moment, but also, again, Hiddleston's acting, I think, is really capturing that of it's driving him crazy because, yeah, it's he has to remember in every moment he can't move because he's not worthy the way his brother is. And I feel like it's also another glimpse into what their childhood was probably like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like something that's happened before. And oh, so yeah, talk about a bully move. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Which, which of course, is where a lot of Loki's anger comes from. But it's also like they're really still just kids. They definitely are. So, so Thor now has him pinned down. And as he's walking back towards the observatory, he's trying to figure this out. I love that. There's this great shot from overhead, the God's eye shot we keep getting. And both Thor and Loki look so small in it. And to me, it really helps capture like these titans who've been having this great battle are still tiny compared to this massive power that's being unleashed. It emphasizes how small they are in the face of this, but also how powerful what Loki has set into motion is with this Bifrost energy, the way that, I mean, you see it starting in that shot, that overhead shot you're talking about, how it starts, like the energy that it's creating, it starts sucking Thor toward it. And it's it's pulling him. And, and you can see it's like now, now the Rainbow Bridge really looks like an ice bridge as he's just kind of slip sliding uh, as it kind of is pulling him down. And so um, it, it emphasizes 
just yeah, the, the scale of power here and, and as powerful as these two are, this giant thing is still far more powerful than either of them. Yeah, you get this one scene at about 39 seconds. It's a very blink and you miss it, but it looks like just a piece of random debris that's like been like yanked forward from Asgard itself comes like careening down the bridge and crashing into the side of the, 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 um, the, the, the turret, the spinning thing. Well, that, and that goes to my point, the thing that I was bringing up at the end of the last minute, like uh, the power of this thing. And, and I mean, I can't help but think that the fact that it's, that they blasted through the wall has destabilized the the st- kind of this whole observatory and now it's it's starting to break down even faster and yeah it's pulling these chunks of of these nearby buildings off and as you said this one hits hits the side of it and i mean even further damaging it and throwing debris into the bifrost i i can imagine that this whole thing is just i mean i feel like the way that I'm seeing what's happening here is if this thing actually was let to destroy Jotunheim, it likely is also going to destroy Asgard as well. Like that's that's the way it seems like it's playing to me. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Did it did it seem like it's it's leading to that for either of you? I think there's a definite potential there that the thought of there being a greater threat or a growing threat makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think that's definitely a possibility. I don't know if I would say I thought of that when I saw it, at least not initially anyway, but it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you could say if, if you see that in it, it's just another nice element to the stakes here too. Cause like, and also this is the minute that basically ends with Loki pinned down and Thor walking without his hammer you know, as as vulnerable as he can be at a point where he's still, after all, Thor, like walking into that storm of energy and everything. And it's a very heroic, you know, moment of, you know, what's what's going to happen? Is he risking everything? So, yeah, I mean, the idea that it also could be a greater threat beyond what we already know makes a lot of sense. I mean, we see the Bifrost blast. I mean, it's basically like sucking the nearby nebulas into it, like everything in space yeah. is swirling around too. So yeah, I, yeah, and certainly it would very much fit the kind of tropes we're playing with now of like that villain who is, you know, they think they have a logical plan, but they're really being driven by emotion, and, and you know, like they can't see that the plan that they have is actually going to be self-destructive to them as well. You know, and I think yes. that, that's very much like, and again, I say trope, but I don't think it's in a bad way. I think it's a very good beat here for Loki of. Now he's just so focused on winning that he can't even see that he's going to destroy everything he loves. I always bring things back to Doctor Who, so I'm sorry. But it's like, <laughs> no, it's a good, it's a good, good cutstone. Yeah, but it's uh, that's typical of like every story with the Master, where he teams up with some alien race and is going to destroy Earth because he knows that it's going to make the Doctor mad. Only he's now going to be in trouble too, and he only realizes it at the end. And I say, oh yeah, you're right. This is going to blow up and kill everybody, including me. <laughs> and it's like, and that's the thing. It's like getting away from Loki and it's, uh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Of course, as for, as for the part about teaming up with an alien race and still getting in trouble, stay tuned. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have that too. That's a good point. That's right. It's, I, I love that even with all of this, that, uh, Loki still 
has to find ways to to needle Thor and to poke at him mm. and that whole look at you the mighty Thor with all your strength it's like you're you're you still can't do it can you you know it's just like uh, what what what's interesting is I love that he's doing that but also it's like that's that's Loki right and he's I mean he can't fight anymore he can't use his tricks he's left with nothing but his words right um, but it's interesting it's like are they actually going to do him any good I find that to be a really interesting place where Loki is is put at this moment. By the way, full disclosure, I didn't actually like rewatch the whole movie in, in preparation for this, just the minutes we were talking about. So I don't remember, but I'm sure you guys do. Is that the first time in the movie you actually hear the words, the mighty Thor? I believe it is. Yes, I believe it is. And I, I, I noted that. I was like, oh, that's a cool little reference. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, again, just a, like a nice little comic nod to like how the title would be. I thought when I watched the minute, I was like, and we have a title, but not for the movie necessarily. <laughs> but, but yeah. So it's just, it's good. Like it's those little things too, where they get, get in a, a word choice or a little turn of phrase that, that would make anybody who's a fan happy to see all these things like coming into reality. Exactly. Exactly. I like it. It's, it's a great little um, moment that we're kind of, left with here as, as everything is being uh, torn asunder. And I, I love how, I don't know, Thor's looking around. It, it's interesting. Is he, is he, I mean, do you think that he could actually just somehow get into the building? And if he broke the ice, would that actually save everything? Or, I mean, at this point, I mean, he's trying to figure out what to do. I'm just wondering if he actually went into that would it just like suck him out the other end or could he actually just get in there to break that the ice and, and save the day? I think it's hard to say what that would be. I mean, like yeah. the you could follow multiple lines of thought with that because like one way would be, yes, that he goes in and basically shatters it from within maybe. And does that stop everything? Sort of like an engine that's running out of control and he, you know, like put the spanner in the works kind of thing. That could be one way of looking at it or maybe not. Uh, I don't think necessarily we're supposed to know, you know, which way this is going to go. And, I, and obviously Thor doesn't. Yeah, it's just it, it's one of those things where I'm like, and, and I guess we could talk about this more in the next minute. Um, in fact, maybe we'll just save it for the next minute as I think about it. I, I'm just I, I want to talk about the decision that he comes to. So, yeah, yeah. we can we can bring that up in the next next one. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say I think it's mostly going to be the next minute. But to me, it's a. It's kind of the next step in his story of he had to, you know, he had, first he had to learn what happens if you don't have your power. Now he's confronted with what happens with a situation that your power can't fix, you know, and mm. I think the next minutes when we'll discuss what does he do with that. Right. Good stuff. All right. Well, Arnold, thank you so much as always. Uh, we've talked about the publishing company. We've talked about the podcast. Is there something else that you're doing out there that folks should know about? There is something brand new that I've been doing lately that I'm really enjoying and have had a nice initial reaction to that's just kind of uh, sweet and heartwarming. Out of nowhere, I started doing a little cartoon strip, and I think that it was a chance to try something different that speaks back to a childhood of peanuts and many other things and just wanting to do something different while I'm sitting in my house <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Nice. And it's called Pickles and Bean. And uh, if you go to picklesandbean.com, you get a new uh, strip every Monday. And uh, I got plans for it that'll take a little story for a while, but uh, people can check that out. Very different from all the other things I do. Nice, nice. We'll definitely check that out. Uh, thank you as always for being here. Andy, thank you so much for all you do to help make these episodes possible. And to our fans, 
You're why we do this. Thank you so much and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. Thank you.